0: The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harrah's Resort SoCal in 2024
2: My name is Lin Jung. I'm a full-time content creator, and I'm a senior at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And I make YouTube videos, TikTok, I'm also on Instagram, surrounded around the Asian-American experience, about being a queer Asian-American, and also what it's like to just go through life and be a 20-something at college, when it comes to exploring fashion, beauty, um, makeup, or like dating. I'm also very passionate about AAPI advocacy work. That's where I see a lot of my career going towards in the future.
0: Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you so much, Lynn, for coming on. And do you like to be called as a content creator, an influencer, a KOL? Like how, what description do we normally use?
2: So I think I see myself as a content creator, but I acknowledge that I am an influencer and I do encourage people to consume or buy certain things. But at the end of the day, When I look at myself as a creative, I do see myself as someone who really loves the entire process of content creation. So from coming up with the idea, to planning production, to post-production, to fine-tuning details and editing processes, and being creative and drawing inspiration from all all aspects of media, um, I really dream and see myself as working as like a creative director one day so that's why i tend to lean towards content creator but i don't shy away from being called an influencer either because i've actually been told before growing up i had a lot of asian american representation because of youtube and i also had a lot of lgbtq lgbtq plus representation but i felt like i never really intersected when i was in middle school or high school And I remember when someone in my comment section said one day, like, Lynn is my Asian American queer rep on YouTube. And it just really resonated with me. And in that moment, I don't mind being an influencer. I don't mind being that person that is able to set aside their lived experiences for other people to relate to, especially for ones that are underrepresented.
0: What got you started in this world?
2: I really just started because I thought it'd be fun. I started on Instagram. I was really into reading as a kid. It was a form of escapism, of exploring new worlds. It's also kind of like how me and my parents like would practice English. I was not a big reader in elementary school, but my mom and my dad encouraged me along the way. And it was also a way for us to like come together as a family when sometimes tension and conflict can be in place with that and so I really started a book blog and what we called bookstagram back in the day. I posted aesthetic photos of books and got to review stories that I was really passionate about sharing with others and then that evolved into an Instagram page that had like almost 50 to 75,000 followers. And that's when I started getting comments that like, oh, we would love to see you on YouTube too and see what you would do with video content. And this is back before Instagram had reels or even like introduced video. It was purely a photo sharing platform where honestly it was just like friends and family. There was no concept of an influencer. And so I jumped onto YouTube, started making videos from my bedroom back home in sophomore year of high school. And then my career really took a pivot when I was about to graduate high school in 2020 and just submitted my last college application. I was like, dang, I don't know how I'm going to pay for college. And so, I, yeah, so I decided like, you know, I've made like a couple hundred bucks from like on and off partnerships throughout um, high school. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to see how much time I can invest into YouTube during my last semester of senior year and see where it goes. And then as we know, the 2020 pandemic kind of closed everything down. And I just like burrowed myself away and made videos every week. I poured my heart and soul into the videos I made in 2020 and they went viral and it gave me the career that I have today. And it's the reason why I get to go to college. It's the reason why I'm able to support myself and my family. So that's kind of my career journey in a nutshell that yeah,
0: did this out of necessity to to support yourself. And it's like, it's really like a real thing that converts into money that pays for tuition.
2: Yeah. And I'm also really fortunate that uh, it really started out of a passion and love for storytelling, you know, from reading books to eventually making videos and documenting my journey. Just me being me has always come from a desire of like, I want people's voices to be heard. And, you know, it, it was also a journey of learning how to value my own voice. So
0: what what kind of books do you like to read?
2: I read all sorts of books. It's insane. I I have been on like a more adult fiction kick lately. So I recently just read up a memoir by Curtis Chin, where um, called Everything I Learned, I Learned in a Chinese Restaurant. And it's about a gay Chinese American who grew up in Detroit. If you are an A, like, if you know AAPI history, you might like recognize the name Curtis Chin, but he grew up in Detroit when the killing of Vincent Chin happened because of the two auto workers uh, over anti-Japanese and overall anti-Asian sentiment. And it's a really awesome memoir. I just got started on it, but I also love fantasy. I read like a good mix of young adult, adult books. I think that now I read because of academia. I read a lot of sociology books and papers as of late, but I love reading for fun. And I feel like it's something that I've been going back into rediscovering and making a hobby again. Yeah, I read a lot of everything right now. I read a ton of sociology books and papers because I'm in the middle of writing my thesis (laughs) wrapping up senior year, but I read a lot for fun starting in high school but as I transitioned to college it's been harder to make time for myself but I recently just picked up a memoir by Curtis Chin who is an awesome awesome Chinese American author he wrote an autobiography essentially about growing up as a gay Chinese American man in Detroit Michigan and at the same time that the killing of Vincent Chin occurred with the two auto workers who killed someone out of anti-Japanese and overall anti-Asian sentiment. But I also really love, you know, fantasy. I enjoy family portraits. So I'm a big fan of a lot of the emerging Vietnamese-American literary artists and poets. And I think my favorite book of last year, I haven't read as much this year, unfortunately, is definitely Babel by R.F. Kuang, who also happens to be an alum of my university and i think it's just like a beautiful meshing of history fantasy linguistics and really relevant commentary on colonization imperialism oppression and what it means to like break free of that as someone who may benefit from the system but wants to uplift their community not just themselves
0: so you are attending georgetown university and for the last few minutes, all I could think about was, I wonder what you wrote in your essay to get into Georgetown. <laughs> yeah. I I am like, uh, you know, at, at your, at where you, uh, at your junction, I can't imagine, like, I'm dying to know, like, what you wrote in that essay and what the admissions people are reading, you know, with this young person. And I'm like, I would love to hear what, what the content was.
2: Yeah, I absolutely feel free sharing it because I actually wrote about reading. I wrote about the first time I actually saw myself in a book and it's called There I'm Back Again by, I don't remember the author. It's, a I used to live in the South. So I grew up seven years in Alabama and Tennessee. My dad was a refugee at the age of 10, 11 and lived in Arkansas, grew up in Arkansas, until adulthood, till he went to college, and then eventually served in the Navy. And so living in the South was something that was difficult. I'm not gonna lie. To all my Asian Americans and Vietnamese folks in the South, like, I hear you and I see you. And this book was about a family that went from Vietnam and then moved to Alabama. And I just happened to be living in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. I was about I think it was in fourth or fifth grade. So I wrote my college essay about that book and how much it meant to me to see myself in those pages and to see my family's stories um, being respected, essentially, and given that platform. And then I eventually also talked about my YouTube career and how passionate I was about storytelling, especially making that platform for people, not just like me, but other historically marginalized communities. That's like very, very central to what I want to do for the rest of my life and what it means to combine art with activism. And that's essentially what my college essay was about. I thought it was pretty niche at the time, but like looking back, I'm like, you know, a lot of people are really passionate about art and activism, which like just gives me a lot more joy, especially since coming here to Georgetown. It was the first time actually um I had Vietnamese American friends like at this number. I have like two really close friends back home who are a year older than me, who kind of like were kind of like older sisters I looked up to, but I've always lived in predominantly white spaces or spaces that didn't have an Asian American population. So coming to Georgetown was even though it's a predominantly white institution was the first time I like learned more about Vietnamese culture and it was the first time I wore an ao um, ever. And so just very grateful that like that essay and whatever admissions officer decided it was qual- good quality to have at Georgetown, um, let me in.
0: Yeah, because uh, as I'm thinking about your journey, I'm thinking about that essay and where it landed on the timeline. So thank you for sharing that. Now, your experience in Georgetown, in the capital of our country, uh, the United States, is a very significant thing and especially your uh, ability to showcase who you are authentically against the backdrop of the United States Capitol. I want to ask you the juxtaposition of who you are versus being at Georgetown. What does that feel like to be able to really fully communicate who you are online versus the actual environment of Georgetown University being in Washington DC?
2: Oh, yeah. This is something I think about every single day. I'm going to be completely blunt. I really think Georgetown needs to cut me a check because I think one of the most grounding moments of like I need to be aware of like what I say and how I represent my experiences is when underclassmen or freshmen first years come up to me and say, Lynn, like your videos are what showed me what Georgetown is like, I didn't know what Georgetown was before your videos. You're the reason why I applied wow. after getting in, I looked at your videos to see if it'd be a good fit. And once again, this is where influencer comes in versus like content creator. I'm like, yes, I see why there's a certain persuasion and some of my storytelling that may actually go against the experiences I have at the university as an institution. It has plenty of flaws You know, it was a slave-holding institution at one point. It, at one point, only had men and (laughs) only white men. And it's not made for people like me and other historically marginalized communities. And so representing those experiences online, I think it's so important that we recognize that higher education isn't for everyone. But people who want to pursue a degree at Georgetown should not feel disparage to because of their ethnicity or race or socioeconomic background so that's why to me it's so important to showcase someone who's happy and thriving in the college environment and like you know we're all suffering to some degree you know it's midterm season it's some days are harder than others some days some remarks might be made in class that you're just like, wow, that is, I can't believe we're at the college level and people are still saying insensitive stuff like that. Um, can I swear on the
0: podcast? Yeah, of course you can fucking say
2: okay. it. You okay. I, you're, you're, in, you're at this institution. You're just like, I can't believe all these idiots are still saying racist shit like that. And you it just kind of takes you back a moment, um, and reflect on like who you are, where you are, the privileges you have versus what the institution is willing to give to you. So it's tough because even though I'm in DC, I am also really lucky that there's a Vietnamese American community in Northern Virginia. I actually live relatively close to a lot of the restaurants and the grocery stores I would frequent to get Vietnamese groceries and like that home cooking. And so DC is not like all politics and government and networking as people make it out to be. I think very lovingly people have the acronym dmv which is not department of motor vehicles but dc maryland virginia which i think is a lot more encompassing of the community here or the communities here actually because there's actually like quite a bit of diversity as you get out of central downtown dc like northwest dc and into different wards into maryland into virginia so
0: The Vietnamese community in D.C., uh, I was there just a few weeks ago, um, are different in that they are in the heart of American politics. So the awareness level of representation and being in the space of Asian America is very different and unique than the rest of the country. Um, You came from the South or you spent a lot of time in the South and Being in D.C., what is the Vietnamese uh, community like in Washington, D.C.?
2: So I actually used to also live in Maryland, in Frederick, Maryland, which is around two hours away from D.C. So I have very fond memories of when I was younger going to Eden Center for like bi-monthly grocery shopping trips or for Lunar New Year or other festivals. And for context, Eden Center is this Vietnamese-American hubbub. In Falls Church, Seven Corners, Virginia, it's around like twenty minutes away from Central D.C., and that's really where the Vietnamese American placemaking occurs. And there are Vietnamese restaurants. There are Vietnamese people living in like downtown D.C., but they're they they because of gentrification and also you know rising property costs and all that jazz. A lot of the businesses and homeowners were pushed out to the suburbs, and. I think that it's also still really cool that Vietnamese Americans in the DMV area have access to, I guess, political processes, unlike other folks. But I will say that, like, <laughs> I will say a lot of the, a lot of the people I know, um, I can't I can't say that like I think the Vietnamese American experience is different in D.C. versus like, I don't know, San Jose or Seattle, because I think there is an avenue for advocacy and politics no matter where you are. And being in D.C., if anything, it's a little bit more convoluted because there's a lot more bureaucracy. There's a lot more, um, I think, in my opinion, power struggles to be had to advocate to folks on the federal level. I know personally, a lot of the political activism that I've seen within the Vietnamese American community here has actually been against a gentri- essentially a reinvestment plan that would spur on gentrification in Eden Center last year, and an entire collective organized. It's called a Viet Place Collective to advocate against disinvestment and instead anti displacement anti displacement policies. But otherwise, I feel like I don't know. I I don't want to say that like Vietnamese Americans, um don't participate in politics, but I do feel like it's more at the local level. Like there are a ton of people I know who are delegates for Virginia or serve on their local city council and all that jazz.
0: Now, let let, let me get into this real quick. I mean, I have so many questions for you about uh, the work that you do, but just I'm up against this question about gentrification and our Asian American communities being against gentrification and money, like corporate development or real estate coming in to put money into uh, these Asian-American enclaves, like a Chinatown here in LA. And there's groups that are against these big developers to come in. But at the same time, if there's no money being poured into these communities, I've watched the stagnation of like Chinatown, LA happen for so long. And then all of a sudden, you know, you got some money coming in and they become better. Eventually, it does force communities out. What is the answer to this, you think?
2: So this is an awesome question that I feel like if we had the answer to, we would be implementing those strategies right now. And I really do think that a lot of these conversations are not happening with the people and at the people and meeting people at the table. Mm. I think we are constantly asking community members and business owners to reach up and ask for help and go to these places that they may not have the vocabulary, the language, or the resources to advocate and communicate what their community needs. And I know that for Eden Center specifically, and I can't speak for other ethnic enclaves across the United States, but at Eden Center, when they presented this plan, there was not a single Vietnamese American council member who had a say on this, because there was not a Vietnamese American council member um, creating this initiative. And so even if they did include a policy that was like, hey, like we're trying our best to make sure that y'all are not pushed out. No one contacted the business owners. No one contacted community organizations to ask for their input. And I really do think that when people are able to advocate for what they need, People who are the closest to the problem know how to best treat that problem. And sometimes that discrepancy, that disconnect between people in power who make those decisions and the constituents they serve, it's much wider than those policymakers think it is or the way it's perceived. And I know in, in um, I've actually done some readings on Los Angeles Chinatown and Koreatown and i know a big thing that they advocate for is affordable housing Um, affordable housing is often not something we think of when we are looking at businesses and how to keep businesses in place but the moment consumers are displaced for or bought out of their apartments or their complexes are being torn down for redevelopment those consumers can't access those business spaces anymore and i know in a reading i did for los angeles chinatown a lot of community members were like we want affordable housing and instead, people were like, no, let, let us like reinvest into this lease or um, this um, business property rental space. And they're like, no, we really need to keep our community members here. And so once again, really just I, I, I think that at least here in, in Nova, there there needs to be a greater relationship and purposeful, like reaching out um, and listening that occurs before any of these big decisions are made. Sorry, that was really long-winded, but that's what no, my no, thesis is about too. <laughs> oh. That's what my thesis is about. Yeah.
0: I, I'm actually dealing with this right now because I want to do an event at in Chinatown and I know that there's this opposition group against, you know, so it's a complicated and a complex. So thank you so much for answering so intelligently and allowing me to get a glimpse because I don't, you know, a lot of these issues I don't know about, but they come up as I'm doing my work and you know i come here to the podcast because i see these uh cool things that you've posted and these lifestyle things but who knew that there was like this layer of you know the depth of understanding the issues at at such a young age and i really commend you for for knowing the issues i mean I couldn't answer that for sure. But now with that, a bit of information, I'm uh, going to go into a a, a potential meeting with the opposition group to kind of ask them like, Hey, what can we do to sort of understand the issues better? And, you know, when we hold our event that we're not, um, you know, creating more uh, displacement or, you know, bad energy here.
2: Right. And I I totally understand that. And, it's really tough. These conversations are tough because people have different interests and sometimes it's really hard to, it's, it's, it's a lot harder to walk in other people's shoes. Yeah. <laughs> it, a lot easier said than done. And so, yeah, thanks for letting me kind of nerd out on gentrification and displacement theory
1: and, stuff. <laughs> and some ethnic on club stuff
0: I, and and you know like as I'm reading uh, and watching your post, you're you're talking about like I think it was the bago where you're like putting things in, or is that yeah the... yeah yeah. And I'm like yeah,
2: it's like yeah, it's a bag yeah. yeah yeah.
0: And these are things that uh you know you're living your real life, and these are things that are happening. But like the 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 far-reaching topics of like this displacement and and all this is not that far. It's really in your purview of what you are working on in your life. Uh, you, you said your thesis paper, right?
2: Yeah. And I think that something I've been asked a lot is how I shape my content to make sure it stays consumable, especially for brands. And something I've never shied away from is my values in the pe- with the people I work with, with the companies I work with. With the people I associate myself with and I call friends and even family and I just think it's really important that you know I don't have to sacrifice my creative career for the communities I I really 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 care about and that I can in a way give them a voice so yeah it's really important to me
0: (laughs) how uh Did you design your uh, content or posts from the early days and how is it different today? Can you walk me through sort of the process of the early days and then what is it? How has it been changed and modified to the current uh, form that you've done? Yeah, I think
2: one thing one thing that I stress a ton is to make sure that I never feel comfortable in a way that I always have a rhythm. You know, there's always a groove when it comes to my creative process. But when things become formulaic, it dries out that creativity Mm -hmm. and it becomes more of a rote task than something that I'm actively engaging in and making thoughtful decisions about. So I love taking inspiration from other pieces of media besides whatever content I'm making. So if I'm making a TikTok, I'm going to go look elsewhere. Maybe I'll look to my favorite movie. Maybe I'll listen to a song. Maybe I'll go to Pinterest. And then I'll look into making that short format video. And I've grabbed inspiration from others, but I've also taken risks and like just done things I really wanted to do. Like one time I... Decided, I really want to open an Etsy shop, and so I did. And I documented the entire process of what it was like to do this out in my childhood bedroom, which was very small. And my parents complained a ton when they heard the printer going twenty four seven. They're like, "Why? Why are all these sounds coming from your bedroom? It's so loud!" And it's because I was like mass producing. Well, mass producing in quotations. I was like probably printing fifty copies, which is not a ton, but printing copies of like stickers and art prints to sell my Etsy shop, and then. I was like, I've never really seen anyone do this before, but I've always wanted to share my art with others and be able to make a living being an artist. So I'm gonna give it a try. And then the video went viral and it's probably still my most viewed video to this day. And I think it has over 4 million views now on on YouTube. And taking that risk, that creative risk was very important to me because nowadays I feel like a lot of people will tell you to look to the trend, look to the trending sound, see what other people are doing. And it's really important to be able to take whatever you see that you like and, and learn how to make it your own. And I think that it's the way that you put out your best content, but you also make sure that you're growing as a creator or an artist in general or like in any any field, to be honest. So
0: Here's what separates somebody like you from me we are diametrically opposed in the courage department you oh. <laughs> have the courage to to come up and design and 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 take a risk whereas i think most people are like me where i have all these ideas but I am so afraid to execute these ideas beyond the podcast that I do. Uh, let's face it; the, I, I'm just sitting here asking questions. I am not putting my ass on the line with some risk uh, of of a video that you that you did that you just described. You know, that's a, like a that's a big investment in terms of a risk. And I wanted to ask, where do you think you've found that courage so early on to have that?
2: I think my parents gave me it. I think both in hearing their stories growing up and how they came to where they are today and also my interactions with them. This is going to sound so goofy if, if my parents listen to this. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, um, there's, there's studies done on middle class versus working class families. And middle class families are more likely to compromise and reason with their kids when it comes to raising them. Whereas working class families will be like, oh, like, oh, do this. And if the kid questions, like, oh, why? And then the kids, like, the working class parent will be like, because I said so. Whereas middle and upper class families are more likely to explain why and like reach this understanding of like, oh, yes, this is a net positive for the both of us. If you do, I don't know, do the dishes right now. <laughs> and I think being told like, oh, because I said so growing up made me a very not defiant child, but I learned very early on um what it meant to stand up for myself, whether it's like, oh, I really wanted to participate in speech and debate in choir in high school. But my parents are like, it's gonna take you away from home too much. You're gonna be traveling, going on like these field trips or these tournaments. Like, no. And I learned, I was like, I really love this. Like this is what I want to do. I know that It gives me so much joy and it's also going to help me get into college and knowing when to stand up for myself um to my parents which i think is probably one of the scariest things ever i I ran on the system of like i needed to cash in and wait after a little bit when i asked my parents something that was like out of the blue you kind of like know that like maybe it's maybe every couple years or every couple months that's when you can ask a a big thing from your parents And I kind of learned that system (laughs) in terms of like taking risks and knowing when and how to be brave and also knowing when to like keep my head low and wait it out. (laughs) And so my parents kind of built that resilience in me of not just like knowing when to advocate for myself and find success, but also knowing that like rejection and this time not being the moment does not mean that I won't be able to achieve that in the future. Like my parents told me growing up, I I, I could never be an artist because it does not pay the bills. And if they had the money, they would let me be an artist, but we didn't. But here I am now, (laughs) um, essentially making art and videos for a living. And yeah, I I, I think that knowing that rejection, it's like redirection and all that jazz, all from my parents, literally all from my parents.
0: I, I'm very proud of the work that you do, especially being um, a part of the Vietnamese community. I'm very proud of the work that you do and the work that you've put out. How do your parents uh, feel today?
2: Oh, you know, I I am unsure. I think my 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 parents would love to brag about me, but they also would be like, ah, it's nothing. Like, you know what I mean? It's like that 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 humble brag that a lot yeah. of I the, think Asian families do. Yeah. Um, (laughs) in a way, I think it was probably my freshman year of college. I was just having this conversation with my dad over the phone one day and we don't talk on the phone a ton. So it was just like one of those moments that I knew was very important. And he just asked me like, Lynn, have you ever considered like combining what you do with YouTube now with like your future career. And I'm like, yes, dad. That's what I've been trying to tell you this entire time. Like, there is an avenue for art and marketing, communications, creativity in quote unquote conventional career paths. And like having that moment of approval meant the world for me. Wow. My mom, my mom was a parent growing up that was like, if we had the money, I would send you to some fancy schmancy art school and you would just do XYZ thing for your own happiness for the rest of your life, but you don't have that money. Um, So I feel like she always saw this, this path for me since I was a kid. Fun story. My mom came to the U S had very limited English proficiency. And so when she was pregnant with me, she watched a ton of PBS shows and she especially loved um, Donna Dewberry and Bob Ross. And my mom, (laughs) she tells us to everyone who like comes by and like compliments my art skills she's like ah like it's because i watch a ton of bob ross and donna dewberry when i was pregnant with her she has these artistic skills and that's also how she learned english from watching tv and like listening to the radio
0: you know that might not be too far from the truth right i mean you're just separated by just some some uh flesh membrane from you know the (laughs) yeah
2: i ingested all those techniques all
0: of the techniques of uh (laughs) That is funny. What, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you?
2: I don't know. Honestly, I I thought I had a pretty good understanding before I got to college, but now I think that being Vietnamese looks differently for everyone. I always thought of myself as like very Vietnamese because I was often the only Southeast Asian person in a room growing up and that I stood out for that. Um, we can talk about like disparities between different ethnic groups, but like coming from like family that has experienced like trauma from war and separation and displacement, it's, it's different than, than other, other immigrant families or even similar. So I empathize with that struggle a ton being Vietnamese to me. I think the first thing I have to say is family and that sounds so cheesy and corny, but every single time I think about my future I see my family and they at heart are like (laughs) the essence and where I learned what being Vietnamese meant at least in the U.S. context and as part of the diaspora I will say that a lot of the food I have is also how I really dive into my ethnic identity since moving away from home I'm, like, very lucky that I have, like, affordable Vietnamese restaurants in the area, but I've also, like, learned how to make, like, very signature Vietnamese dishes, like, takao and, like, gum tam um, and all that jazz from scratch at home.
1: Wow. And,
2: yeah, and when it comes to, like, exporting and sharing what it means to be Vietnamese with other people who aren't Vietnamese, I feel like food is just one of the easiest place places to find that common ground and be like, hey... This is, this is a glimpse into what being Vietnamese is like. It's like a ton of fish sauce. It's like, you know, observing Buddhist holidays where we don't eat meat. Um, it's like celebrating Lunar New Year. It's like kind of knowing the language, but not knowing the language. That's what it looks like for me being Vietnamese. But I know it might look different for someone else who grew up in a different place outside the United States in Vietnam. So yeah, food and family. I think those are, those are the two most important things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, when you let's go back to the process of 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 uh, the the content that you make, because when I think about a book or a film or a story, typically there's thematics behind it. Is that what you do when you uh, set out to make every post? Do you think about does it fall in line with my theme, or do you just you know? you just go uh, with your gut and it doesn't matter what thematics you have or is there a guiding principle, uh, a design guide, if you will?
2: Hmm, That's a really good question, mainly because I feel like I fall in between. I have a very strong sense of what my personal brand and style is. And that's obviously up to change with time. I think if you look at my page, you can see significant like maybe editing style changes. But I think the theme, the theme versus like the actual aesthetics of the post have always had the same heart throughout my entire creation journey. And I think at the center of all of it is like a desire to like, once once again, like figure out what my voice is and like, how I can use it and how to share my story. And I, I do take A ton of attention to details and I'm also like a maximalist so even if you go to like the beginning of my YouTube videos you can see that like the way I decorate my room although it might be with different things today it's with the same attitude and the same care and so I really enjoy experimenting and trying new things but once again like I know what I like so taking what i like from others or from other sources and mixing and matching it with what i i love um, it's usually how i come up with my ideas or photos or editing styles and i think like every once in a while i'll venture out a little further and it'll be something completely new but usually it's kind of like a point of experimenting and then i take back what I enjoyed and what I was proud of and then put it into like my roster my little tool toolkit of things I can do now.
0: <laughs> you know when I look at um the likes and the comments and I think about how in human, not inhumane, but inhuman the processing of that many people like on one post you had like 82,000 likes, right? Or another one you had 40,000 likes. That is inhuman to process that many people at the same time liking a post. Do you ever think about that?
2: No, I think I'm a little bit desensitized to it now. Mm. I'm not going to lie. I I really do try my best not to analyze things too much, mainly because I am so, so grateful that something a little bit different from my platforms versus maybe other content creators and influencers is that... I have like a very loving, loyal, passionate, progressive audience and fan base. And even when I don't post for like two months, people always come back. So I'm very grateful that like my, I guess, viewership, but also my career has been like pretty stable since high school. And it's coming up on like six years on YouTube now. And kind of learning how to like ride that wave of like growth and plateauing maybe decreasing and plateauing is just like part of life mm-hmm. <laughs> like now that I have done it for six seven years I understand that careers don't go in a positive yeah. linear line all the time and so it feels like cycles and I've kind of learned how to like ride out cycles and focus more on what I'm putting out and being proud of what I put out versus like what type of metrics i think i might garner um obviously i'm very happy when people like a post but that's also very in my opinion subjective because algorithms are constantly changing and you never know maybe it's an off day and like no one's online that day and so you're not getting the same reach and i've been doing it for so long that i kind of just went through the, the the rough parts of it and i've come out like, oh, this is not my priority. Um, yeah. very grateful, but it's not my it's not my priority. Um, um, like once again, like comments, like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about people being like, you are a piece of like my representation and who I see myself in media, those moments are really important to me. So important. Um, and knowing that that impact is what keeps me going. Um, creates
0: and we when you see comments like that do you reply do you do you have the need to like oh
2: yeah i'll yeah i'll go and reply i i'm not gonna lie i'm very busy right now with school but you know usually when i post a youtube video i try to check in and see like how people are doing because sometimes i'll ask like hey just like tell me about your day and like if i'm doing a video about talking about my favorite things i'll be like let me know what your favorite things are or what music are you listening to and I try to be aware of the the what's the word parasocial relationships that can form right and those power imbalances. But most of the time I'm just like, oh my gosh, like they're listening to the same music I do Let me like heart their comment and be like, yeah. oh my gosh, I love that artist. Those are very simple, simple things and I I like having those like little interactions because it's very grounding. And when I see people, um in real life when they come up to me in real life I always try to like talk to them like they're a friend <laughs> or they're just someone I met in class um I think like a lot of people are really shy and trust me I've been in that moment where I was really shy I remember last May I was at this gala and it was like my fifth fifth time seeing Eric Nam in person for AAPI month and I like ha- literally threw all the courage out the window the first four times and then finally i had the guts to go up and say hi and i was just like wow it takes so much this goes back to the courage question you had but i was like i take so much courage to say hi to someone that you look up to um so when like people come up to me in real life or if they have a really kind sweet comment or like insight on my youtube video or my instagram page like i think about like ah it took them time and thought and courage to put that so it
0: I imagine, do you get approached much on campus? I
2: I do. I I feel like I keep to myself most of the time (laughs) because I'm tired and sleep deprived (laughs) all the time. Um, But yeah, people do come up to me on campus and it's very sweet. I always appreciate when people do. If you are listening and you ever see me in real life, please come say hi. If I seem a little bit tired, it's probably because I am, but I'm always so grateful when people come and, just talk to me because it's so sweet. It's very wholesome. And I'm always like willing to take a photo if you wanna take a photo, (laughs) so.
0: I'm gonna end on this question. Uh, I know you're uh, running, um, you have a heart out. I want to know from your perspective, being in college, being uh, in the young generation and you're looking out and you're seeing climate out of control you're seeing these wars these barbaric wars you're seeing all of this negativity out there um and i'm sure you're seeing a lot of positive stuff too um as as i see it on your your posts and stuff what is your outlook for the future
2: well i would like to say that i am optimistic i have a lot of hope i think that it's really easy to become pessimistic about things and that's a cop-out so if you're pessimistic i get it if you have pessimistic feelings i get it but it's a cop-out i think that the people that have stayed optimistic in history are revolutionaries they're leaders they're people like my folks my family and my ancestors i think there's this really beautiful graphic novel that i recommend to anyone who is looking to read more about Southeast Asian literature and like specifically Vietnamese experience called The Best We Could Do. And in that book, she like coins the term like refugee reflex. And I know that in a way that's like almost intergenerational, almost like epigenetics, that this resilience that I have is not because of my own life experiences, but what has been passed down to me from generations before. And that is what makes me optimistic for the future, because if like they could fight it so I can live a life, I can fight it so many more can live a life. Um, Because I think, who is it? Maybe it's Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison, like, said, oh, you know, we all die one day, but it's how we live that matters and how we choose to live. And so I think making sure that we are leaving space for ourselves just as important as leaving space for our futures um I recently <laughs> there's a little bit of a tangent but I recently had a conversation with one of my best friends from home about how hard it is for our parents to treat themselves I'm like I know you don't have to be eating a five cent cup of noodle right now like mom please go like treat yourself to like take out um but they find it so hard to give themselves that space to like just sit and like have that little ounce of happiness and like self-care and I think the moment we start thinking of ourselves as part of the future as much as like quote-unquote hypothetical children or future selves um, it starts we start to ground ourselves a lot more in like what could be and so knowing when to like hey like it's okay to like take take out dinner for yourself and knowing when to advocate for others it's like essential to, to like hoping for the future. So.
0: Well, these closing words are good words to live by Lynn. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I, you know, I know that you had a very uh, limited amount of time, but I think we, we really did cover a lot of stuff.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much.
0: And I look forward to you know the, the future work that you do beyond uh, once you graduate from Georgetown and, and go out and you know be active in the world and changing the world. I could see uh, the future of my children in the work and, and, the, and the thinking that you are putting out there.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Kenneth. It was lovely speaking with you.
0: As well. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast